This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. All right, John here. My usual co-host, David Craner, is off this week. He'll be back soon. My guest is Dave Rauschwerk, who is the founder and CEO of Next Thing Company. This is a, a company that makes an incredible $9 computer. Welcome, Dave. Hey, great to be here. So uh, the chip, as this $9 computer is called, launched on Kickstarter back in 2015. It's been shipping this spring it's one of these amazing Kickstarters where the goal was $50,000 and you raised $2 million. So this seems to have resonated, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the the really interesting thing is the number of people that supported the project. I mean, almost 40,000, like 39,500 something. Uh, and it's it it hit a nerve, right? And, and we, you know, chip came out of our own experience and own real failure of trying to build and scale hardware. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, we tried to fix all of the different pieces and all the problems that we encountered as we worked on these things for years. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, these are all the things that I wanted. You know, things like the battery <laughs> life, the built-in Wi-Fi, um, you know, the size, the ability to have so many GPIOs. I mean, it's not like it just sort of fell out of the sky. I mean, it's the distillation of years of frustration that we encountered firsthand. And, you know, we really needed the community to help us. You know, when we say that like we need your help, we meant it. I mean, the only way that chip is possible is because the community supports it, both from a technical perspective and also financially. I mean, we have to make hundreds of thousands of them in order to get the price where it is, uh, to get those economies of scale. And it's just an incredible thing to see the community supporting the project and being part of it. So what did you do in order to make it work? I mean, the hardware industry is very large, very experienced, very well financed, and they hadn't created a $9 computer before. So what fundamental thing were you able to do that uh, previous people weren't? Well, I mean, that's <laughs> there's a there's a really sort of broad question in that way. But there's a couple of things that were really important. Um, the first thing was selecting componentry that already had really great traction in the community. So mm. we use uh, an all-winner uh, SOC, which is a Chinese company, independent, not government-funded, really rad group of folks. It's like 700 people, 600 of them are engineers. Like It's just an awesome place to see. It's in Zhuhai, China, which is kind of like the Portland of China. They have a bike share and <laughs> like local farms. It's really cool. Um, wow. And so, yeah, so they... They have already created this this community because they had really high end, high performance processors um, that were in everything. So in 2013, mm -hmm. they sold 100 million units of their chipset for tablets. So if you bought a 49 dollar Android tablet, that was like kind of meh. Like you you had an all winner chipset in there, mm -hmm. and the issue was that like yeah, it was it was good for the price, but when you ran Android on it, it was just like too heavy and it really wasn't that great of an experience. And so they they had really made a ton of these things, and what happened was people started hacking them to try and figure out how they could get Linux onto it. Because Android is a Linux derivative. It uses a frozen kernel in the 3.x realm um, at the time. And 
They're like, man, if we could just get Linux on this, we could have like $49 like Ubuntu tablets and that would be awesome. Mm -hmm. So this thing started completely self-organized called the Sunshi community. That's S-U-N-X-I. And it's this massive wiki and IRC uh, sort of nexus and also a bunch of projects and tools on GitHub. And these guys were doing incredible stuff with these processors. And so, you know, if we had picked, say, some chipset that didn't have this community around it from the beginning, it would have been very, very difficult for us to do the things that we wanted to do. And, and principally, one of those things was mainline the Linux support for it, which means that the, the standard version of Linux that Linus Torvalds commits every night actually runs on chip, uh, the most current so, version. And the same goes with having an open source bootloader. And that means that the latest version of U-Boot runs, which means all the cool things you need to build products and make your projects super snazzy can work out of the box. Is the SOC itself open source? The SOC itself is not open source. I really do wish it was. Um, the, the IP situation in the semiconductor market is kind of like the music business in the 50s. Uh -huh, it's uh -huh. really, really cloistered and a little backward. But, you know, really the thing about what they do is billions of dollars of research go into creating effectively a photograph. Mm -hmm. You know, they create these lithography stencils. And if you have a copy of it, you can reproduce the product. I mean, there's, of course, testing and manufacturing and quality assurance things that are really important. But the idea of truly open IP and in mass hasn't made its way in there. There were efforts to do yeah. it, things like um, open cores and open risk and things like that. And there's some still some things going on, but it hasn't caught on yet. Yeah, there's not really a, a commercial ecosystem around it in the same way that there is with open source software. And it's not clear if there ever could be. Well, that, that's a, perhaps a conversation for a different time. I mean, the, the, <laughs> sometimes the, all it's going to take is you know one person to, to coalesce all these people around it. And, and I think that's, that leads into the next point of you, you know, this bigger question of how, how do we do it? Well, you, know, you needed to pick something that already had a community. And it was you know, small by you know, Reddit standards, but big by open, you know, niche open source project standards, so a few hundred people. And you had to get enough people on board uh, in terms of purchasing chip to place a big enough order. You know, it was a huge gamble mm -hmm. because you, when you're talking about even the chip company uh, and you're talking about buying DRAM and NAND and all these things, you really have to buy a lot of it. We're talking like hundreds of thousands of pieces at once. Otherwise, they don't even take your phone call. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this was a way to use the community as a lever to basically place a large enough order with the chip companies that the pricing would make sense. And there was a lot of controversy when we launched about, oh, it's impossible. Like, you can't do it. It would cost like 50 bucks. And it's like, well, yeah, if you buy them one at a time, of course, right? But mm -hmm. if you mm -hmm. make a lot, a lot of them, then it starts to work. So so your initial goal of $50,000, you know, you you raised $2 million, which is enough to buy a lot of these and and get into the volume. Would 50000 have been enough in retrospect? I mean, we, we, had, we knew that we were going to make it anyway, no matter what happened. We'd gone down this road and we knew, like statistically, having looked at the models and how the things worked, like we knew that if we produced a certain number of units, we could get the right price. We had done all of our due diligence on that and we'd done the right component selection and we had negotiated the agreements and all these things. So it was possible. Now, mm -hmm. the only, there was, it could have gone another way, which is like people said, I don't believe this. It's not mm -hmm. real. And then we would have just made, you know, the $50,000 worth and then people would have seen it. And then it would have happened later. Sure, um, sure. It was phenomenal that it all happened at once. And we made a lot of effort to really showcase the thing, let people play with it, help them understand like what it was, how it worked, why it mattered. And you know, part of that was, of course, like building pocket chip, which is an entirely different point. But um, again, really, like we talked about briefly the other day, you know, you really have to find a way to help people understand what this thing is 
and why mm-hmm. they should care about it. And it can't just be people like us. It has to be people in mass. And once that happens, if you can get it to cross over, then you can get that coalescence around it, which is required. And, and the one other point I wanted to make talking about how we do this, I mean, we had to work really hard to solve a pretty fundamental you know, computer science and semiconductor driver problem, and that's around the NAND. And mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that drives the price of you know, embedded products, of smartphones, of all this, is the, the storage. And mm-hmm. you hear about this a lot in trade press. And you, the Wall Street Journal will pick it up occasionally. It's like, oh, NAND prices are soaring and things are going to get more expensive and there's a shortage. Well, the industry has switched to something called EMMC, which is effectively very similar to an SD card. It is the raw NAND, which are like little boxes of switches that can keep their state. And then they take a microcontroller and they bolt it on. And the microcontroller mm-hmm. is the sort of logic of how you read and write things to it. And it checks blocks. It makes sure that things aren't corrupted. It assigns memory to different slots. You got it, right. So it does the wear leveling. I mean, it turns out that the way that you write stuff to this very fungible semiconductor, it's kind of like dark magic. There's mm-hmm. things like bit flips. And a bit flip is when you know you write something into one cell and its actual change in polarity has a side effect of changing the value of something adjacent to it. And this is mm. something you have to check for, right? And so we were, I was really quite lucky to meet um, uh, Dr. Kaplan, who's our VP of engineering. And he is, of course, a particle physicist from CERN. And I was like, we can, we have a physicist. We can do this. <laughs> Let's figure it out. And we worked really closely with our friends at Free Electrons who had been part of the Sun Xi community and working on mainlining it. And we, we really spent a lot of time getting to a place where we could run raw NAND. So this is NAND without the microcontroller. Because those microcontrollers are totally proprietary. And that's mm-hmm. where the cost comes from. EMMC can almost be twice the cost of raw NAND. And so what this did is it fundamentally, for people that are using Linux on their products, we've pretty much cut this cost of storage in half. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really exciting. And you know, the idea that making a $9 computer wasn't something that you just had to do, it was something you actually had to engineer your way into was really exciting for us. It's like, all right, awesome. All we have to do (laughs) is stay up all night for six months and then write some software and it will get cheaper. That's That's a challenge I'm willing to accept. A lot of the kind of new hardware movement, you know, people going out and creating hardware who haven't, you know, been deep into hardware before is about kind of hacking the supply chain or writing software that uses, you know, modularized, abstracted blocks of hardware. But uh, it's remarkable that you did some fundamental revision to the way that a computer works. Yeah, I mean, it's a total it's a total fantasy for us. Like we kind of have to take a step back from, you know, replying to customer support and shipping stuff and be like, this is crazy. Like we made a computer. Awesome. You know, right. right. Um, And it and like the thing is that that there's still some real fundamental engineering problems to be solved. Some of them border on science, you know, like working from first principles. I'm just, I'm so mesmerized by, there's like a video of John Carmack talking through the original version of Wolfenstein, where he's talking about <laughs> writing the engine. If you haven't seen it, you have to watch it. It's just like mind blowing. The guy is next level. And he had to work from first principles, like looking at the academic articles for how you would actually create, you know, these 3D environments and build the stuff. And you kind of feel like everything's been done already when you've been Mm -hmm. in this business a long time. And to find out that there's something so fundamental that could have such an impact, like when you're talking about taking a dollar off of the price of a product that costs nine bucks, it's like incredible. Was this a technological advance that other hardware makers had developed but just kept proprietary? Unfortunately, yes. I mean, this is this is something that is very, very closely guarded secret uh, in the in the NAND world. Um, And 
you know, I mean, I, I respect their business, however they want to operate it. That's not, you know, I can comment on it, but it's not really my, my problem. I mean, mm-hmm. for us, like this was a way for us to use our software engineering uh, skills to sort of, as you say, hack, hack the supply chain, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the crazier thing is that, you know, the scale that we're making things out, we're making hundreds of thousands of these things um, starting, you know, every month almost. And it's like, well, there are people who have the capacity to make millions of them. And, you know, it, it's something that if enough people decided that this was something they wanted to do, I mean, if even a small group of people, the right people decided it, um, it, it could have been done. And I think it's there's a real disconnect between the people who are using these tools, who, who actually want something like this, and the people who make the decisions about how these things are sold, what they cost, you know, because nobody really needs another eight inch, you know, Windows tablet, right? And mm-hmm, yet that stuff mm-hmm. is, it's really inexpensive. And it's built at such enormous scale. And it could be so useful for so many other things, but they're so far removed from the reality of what it's like to do what we do to go from small group of people just trying to make something to make more of it and aren't really exposed to the the economic sort of cartel because they're a part of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to I want to step back for a second because uh, you you mentioned earlier that you developed this to solve your own problem. What what was that? What so this this wasn't just kind of a um a dream that you woke up with one night that you would have a nine dollar computer. There was something you were trying to solve. Yeah, I mean, it would be funny if I hit my head on a toilet and, and we all did three all you know the whole nine of us just all fell at once, hit our head on a toilet, and then great Scott, you know, like the flux capacitor it wasn't quite like right, that. Right, right, right. Uh, it was it was more of a very painful toil. I mean, we about two years ago, you know, we. I had done an art installation um, with a giant animated GIF camera, kind of like Moy Bridges' original, original movie camera. And we wanted to you know, first turn it into a kit. And then we're like, ah, oh, we should make this into a thing. Let's build a $99 animated GIF camera. Just totally wacky thing. I mean, we, our background is in interactive art and installation art. And it just seemed like something that would be, that needed to exist. Like it was really fun. And we would make it hackable. We wanted to make an open source product for people like us that was disguised in the clothing of a real consumer product, even a toy, to get people more interested in this kind of stuff and show them what was possible. That that a team of three people could build a digital camera. Like that's mind-blowing to me now. It's like camera companies are huge, you know, Nikon, Sony, a Canon, like, look, something crazy is happening. There's just a few people here. That means something really exciting is happening. So the problem was we we thought, you know, naively having read Bunny's blog forever, which I love. And, oh, man, Shenzhen, like we're going to go to Shenzhen and it's going to be kind of like in Zelda, like where you can throw <laughs> your sword into this like fairy's pond and all of a sudden it comes back and you have superpowers. Like you right. would take your prototype to China and then all of a sudden the thing that cost $300 to build would be 99 bucks retail. Right, and, right. And then, yes, you know. So it was And kind that's of, exactly how it works, right? That's exactly how it works, actually. Um, you, you need to have at least four and a half heart pieces before you get on the plane, though. <laughs> Otherwise, it doesn't work out. Um, but yeah, no, it, it was, it was, there was sort of that idea. And I think a lot of people hold this notion, which is, you know, idea, China, profit. You know, uh-huh, it's like, uh-huh. it's not quite that simple. And, you know, we, we went there and what we ended up with was um, something that cost a lot of money to make. We had to do a lot of engineering on, you know, supporting the power supply and the Wi-Fi integration and the ability to drive the display and all these things. And we ended up creating something instead of $99, we had to sell it for 250 bucks. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, we always joked like, oh, you know, it'd be really cool if like B&H Photo or like Urban Outfitters called us and they wanted our camera. Like, it'd be great next to the Impossible Project Polaroids. <laughs> and they called. I was like, oh, awesome. You know, and it turns out that like, what's your wholesale price? Oh, well, you mean like, what do we sell it to you for? 
or what do they cost to make? It's like, well, we sell mm-hmm. it for two fifty, and it, I think it costs around about two fifty to make. You uh-huh, know, and it's just, uh-huh. it's like, oh crap, this is not a good business. <laughs> this is not going to work. And you know, we started talking to other people about this. I mean, we, we, we came out of Hacks and Shenzhen. So we had a bunch of friends working on it. And, you know, we're in Oakland and there's a bunch of hardware startups here. Just everyone trying to make stuff. And everyone said the same thing. Like, it didn't matter how much venture money they had or how much experience they had. They're like, look, man, like, it's as simple as that. If you're not a giant company, you're not going to mm-hmm. be making stuff that you could sell in retail because getting those, those margins right is impossible unless you get your volume up. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, how, mm-hmm. do I, how do I get my volume up if I can't make enough of them to get into enough people's hands to actually play with it, I'm never like you're just stuck. So we saw that, and with our own work, we're like we have to make this camera cheaper. It's really fun, uh, and it's like this people should have this. How do we make it 99 bucks? And we said, okay, well, if you look at how hardware and consumer electronics work, they tell you, hey, it's got to be two and a half times to three times your cost of goods in order to get it on market and not you know go out of business. Well, that means if you want to make a 99 dollar animated gift camera you got to make a $33 animated gift camera. Right. And that that even bro- breaks my fantasy of, yeah, we'll go to China. It's like, we're going to try to make a $33 <laughs> animated gift camera. Like, that sounds insane. Yeah. And, you know, I told people that we're going to do this thing before the $99 camera. And they're like, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Who wants an animated gift camera? It turns out a lot of people, it's just too expensive, but that's a different conversation. And <laughs> so, yeah, we said, okay, Based on that $33 number, we have to lower the price. It's got to be below 10 bucks. If the computer guts inside are below 10 bucks, then you got $23-ish to do the packaging, the enclosure, all the stuff. And so everything that we learned building Auto, the hackable animated gift camera, went into how chip worked, how it was designed, what was included on it, the number of IOs, how the software worked, every single frustration that we had, we, we wanted to undo. And we worked, you know, this sort of uh, quasi Zen Buddhist idea of Shoshin, right? The beginner's mind. We're like, we're not semiconductor people. You know, we don't know anything about the chip business. Like, how does this work? What would the fantasy thing look like? And Uh that's where we started. And we just sort of drew a picture and cut it out of cardboards. Like, it would be this and it would be $9 and you could get it anywhere. And we started there. And we just went back to China and pounded the pavement. And we knew, having talked to everyone, that if we could build this, that people like us, who were using these single board computers or building stuff, they would understand. Without even having to explain it to people, we'll be like, wait a minute, if this is nine bucks, it can go in everything. And that's, you know, that's pretty much what happened. And then you get into a place where you're just building a universal, inexpensive computer that makes computing almost free. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll keep working on it. I mean, the goal is, you know, what happens when computers are free? And yeah, you know what yeah. happens to computers? They get smaller, they get faster, and they get cheaper. And when you look at the technology that we use, and I want to really emphasize to people that like the tech that we use is not new. It's not state-of-the-art. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about a 55 nanometer semiconductor process on the R8 SoC. It is old tech. The design is over five years old, and it is cheap. But mm-hmm. you know, we have this maxim here um, in the studio, and it's, you know, we build things that are cheap, not shitty. Right. right, and that means like we we there are corners that are cut, and that we don't use the latest and greatest tech. But because we can get stuff that's latest and greatest from a few years ago, and we can pair it with state of the art software, you know, mm-hmm. being able to have the best developer tools, being able to have um, just really fantastic documentation, um, having a way where you can run modern software on it means that something that would they would have stopped making now has this great life, even though it's not the state-of-the-art thing that ARM is putting out. 
So I want to I want to talk a little bit about your industrial design because it it kind of conveys what I, I I think you might be looking for people to make out of these. It's very different industrial design for most single board computers or or microcontrollers that you would see sort of on the hobbyist market. There's a lot of hot pink. Um, the the logo for chip has this distinct kind of 80s feel to it. Uh, it looks like traces on a on a PCB. Uh, you've you've developed something called the pocket chip which is basically an enclosure for the chip that has a screen, a battery, a, a keyboard with these really cool um, PCB keys on it and, and some breakouts at the top. Does this kind of industrial design reflect something that you want users to, to see in this and to get out of it? It's I mean, playful. Yeah, I mean, you, you're, you're, you're picking up on it, right? I mean, I, and I hope that other people do too, right? I mean, well, can I ask you a question? You know, which, what was your first computer? Uh, it was a compact Presario all-in-one. Okay, yeah. And uh, that's like the giant sort of monitor thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And when you saw it the first time, how did you feel? I- excited, yeah. but uh, but I was a nerd. Yeah, so. well, likewise, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing for, for me, like there was there are, your first computer is a key one and some people who answer Commodore 64, like that's, that's, you know, very similar to the idea that when you're a kid, a computer is not something for work. It's mm-hmm. something for fun. And it's about experimentation. And like when we got our first computers, it we didn't have anything to do. Like I had an email account and nobody emailed me. I, it wasn't working. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And we would surf the web and your parents would be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm working. Right. Early and, on, I used to just change the settings on my dad's computer because there was nothing else to do on it except to go into the Windows 3.1 preferences and like change the desktop color. Yeah, that was exactly it. Like that was, I did the same thing. Like, I'm like the day that I discovered browse and I could see uh-huh, all the uh-huh. files was like mind blowing, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And I started, you know, my like I started with Apple II, and uh, there's just a bunch of old computers around. Um, I was lucky because my parents had them and stuff like that. But you know, it, the idea for us that we didn't get into building computers or building technology because we wanted to make money. We got into mm-hmm. it because it was fun, because it was something that was exciting to us, and because it gave us. This, it gave the person who used it to all this power and the access to all this unlimited information. And, and we're still amazed by it. And yet things have become so, you know, we say the word beige and PCs, right, they, right. you know, they've got a little bit better, but it's very much about how can I be more efficient? How can I get to inbox zero? And it's like, uh-huh. no, man, the computer is so much more than that. Right. And, you know, for us, it, it's very important that when people see the things that we make, that that they get a sense of, hey, the people who made this had fun making it. And that means I have permission to have fun using it. And it, it's, you know, it, it's borne out some really interesting choices and, you know, showing people that just because something doesn't look like you expect it to look doesn't mean it's hard to use. We've worked really hard to make something that anyone could use. Um, and and at, at great difficulty, uh, because, you know, calling a single board open source Linux development tool the world's <laughs> first $9 computer is setting yourself up to really disappoint some people. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, you know, like that means that we spent enormous amounts of time on our operating system that runs on the GUI. And like, you know, this thing is, it's embedded. It's, it's time to be headless. But we built a full GUI system based on Debian, you know, and with, you know, custom desktop backgrounds and picking the right applications and making sure the boot time was great and inc- including the storage. So there was no SD card. So it just worked. You know, we, we wanted people to be able to understand it. And the idea was that if you could understand it, then the like the engineers, the people who were going to use it to build stuff, the makers, the hackers, like they were going to have a really great time. Because if it's right. if it's good enough, 
for the regular person, but also flexible enough and designed with that intent for the master, then you really get something. We, we talk a lot here about um, developer tools and products as, like instruments. And a great instrument, you know, you can play chopsticks and you can play Chopin, you know, and, the, and so you're looking for that piano ideal where right. it's a really shallow ramp to get involved, but infinite depth. Right. And then you're not patronizing your users by giving them kind of a child's tool. You're giving them a, a real tool that they can grow into. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, when you, you mentioned the pink and things like that, like we love the color hot pink. We love the neon colors and the, the wackiness of this stuff. But also, you know, there's some intentionality to a lot of this, too, is that, you know, it doesn't things don't have to be engineering. Right. Toys should not be gendered. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm in a store the other day and I go to a lot of toy stores because, you know, that's that's who I am. And we do a lot <laughs> of those things. And there's, you know, a, a young girl goes and grabs a 101 electronics kit and asks her dad uh -huh. what it is. And his first response is, do you want to go to the girls section? And oh. I'm like, no, that's not no the point. Way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he didn't he didn't mean it. He doesn't know any better. And, and it's our responsibility as people who have the chance to design products that people can buy to make something that's inviting to everyone. And, you know, mm -hmm. the, the idea that, you know, there's a fun post on the on the forum on our BBS that is, you know, same story, but it reverse. And mm -hmm. the, a, a kid asks a dad, he says, my kid asked me, why is pocket chip, you know, have all this pink on it? Is it is it for girls? He says, no, it's just pink. Right? Oh, wow. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, that's fantastic. Right. And that's yeah. one of the reasons we did it. Also, it looks really cool. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone can have a pink computer, whatever. Yeah. It's um, awesome. Yeah. Rose gold. Yeah. I'm sorry. The, the silk screen is rose gold. <laughs> and and importantly, no one feels excluded by it That's because right. it's not like a big, you know, navy blue kind of, uh, you know, behemoth. Yeah, absolutely. So, so speaking of tools, I'd like to move on to our next segment, uh, which is called Tools. And this is where we ask our guest on the podcast about um, one or two favorite tools that he or she uses on a daily basis. And it doesn't have to be, you know, CADsoft, Eagle, and my oscilloscope. It can be just sort of like whatever makes your work easy and pleasant um, and, and work defined very broadly. So Dave, what are your favorite tools? Okay. So I, I have two, this is like a really hard question for me. Cause I'm, I, <laughs> I make tools and I love tools more than anything. Uh, and the first one uh, that's sort of evangelizing these two things. The first is, is a socket wrench made by a German mm. company called Wera. That's W E R A. I promise you, I get no kickback from them. Uh, and it's fantastic. <laughs> it is the best socket wrench ever devised by man. The head is indexable. It has a button to lock the sockets on. You can use it like a screwdriver. It has a perfect ergonomical handle. Um, it's an awesome green color. And they use this amazing shot peening process on the steel. Oh. So it just looks spectacular and can stand up to any grease. And I don't get to use it as much as I'm so busy, you know, working on stuff here that I don't get to work on cars quite as much. But we have a full set here, one of our, our luxuries that we've had. Um, and it's just fantastic. Everything down to the sockets having knurling on the back of them. So you can use them without the socket wrench to tighten a nut in a tight spot. It's just spectacular. Uh -huh. Oh, awesome. One of one of my longest running click spirals uh, was was about Swiss made calipers and other like metrology instruments from Brown and Sharp and Tessa, uh, as well as Japanese ones. I mean, they're they're all just gorgeous and so precise. But German yeah, tools, always yeah, so tools, spectacular. Yeah. So wait, no, I'm I'm a I'm a Michitoya person. I don't know if it's Matuyo or Michitoya. I have no idea. But they I call make it Michitoya. Yeah. yeah. They make the Super Cal, which is solar powered and waterproof. I have those. You have one? Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, oh, it's, I'm so it's jealous. I just, it's so awesome. 
I look for things to measure all the time. Like sometimes I don't even have anything to measure, but I'll yeah. take out my brown and sharp one, two, three blocks and just measure them <laughs> with the calipers. Just be like, yeah, okay, well that that hasn't changed. You that's know, exactly. They, do you have a gauge block set yet? That's my favorite. It's exactly one millimeter. <laughs> no, I'm dying. The, the I'm dying to get to get a set. You can get the um the the craw blocks. Those are the starret ones. Uh-huh. Um, they come in like a ceramic version that that expands and contracts less than the steel version. So your number one favorite tool. Where uh, socket wrenches from Germany. You said number two. You have a second. Number two is a formerly German thing that I think is now um, owned by a Japanese company. Uh, and it's it's uh, Rotring. I used to call it Rotoring, but it's Rotring if you can find it. Don't ask me to spell it. I'll screw that up. And it's the Rotring Rapid Pro, which is a solid brass uh, hexagonal with knurled grip ink pen. And I'm going to really nerd out here. And I use a hybrid gel ink retro 51 cartridge in it that I get at Flax down in the city. <laughs> it's like three bucks. And this is what has replaced my Pilot G2 that I used to use all the time. It is divine. The pen is perfectly balanced. It And with that cartridge, it writes great even on paper that's not fancy moleskin paper. It's like the way to go. I'm just searching right now because I have a couple of those myself. Oh, fantastic. It's so good. The, yeah. I think we're the same person. Yeah, I've, I've had them since I was in like seventh grade. I went to school carrying one of those in my bag. <laughs> Is your dad Dieter Roms or something? Like, how did you get onto that? That's so awesome. I have no idea, but here's the case. Yeah, you have it. Okay. I, I keep it in my uh, bag now to carry my Oh, those, but those Apple, are the 600 pencil in. So that's a that's the old school stuff. That's actually made in Germany. Yeah, I can't I I looked them up recently and I couldn't discover. Yeah, if they if they're owned by a Japanese company now that makes sense. So I, I think hadn't the, realized that. Yeah, so I mean the, if you can find one on eBay um, that's like the Rotring 600. They're much more expensive. The cool thing about the Rapid Pro, I, I have left three of them three separate times, both in Taipei at semiconductor factories and, and on the markets in Shenzhen, like on somebody's stall trying to write something down in Mandarin. And uh-huh. they're on Amazon. You can get them for like 29 bucks, which oh, wow. I think yeah. for somebody who's going to lose their pen, that's a lot of money. But right. to have a sublime like sketching writing experience, $29 is hard to beat. Yeah, I am entirely for it. I've also recently gotten into the Kaweco, K-A-W-E-C-O. Oh, yeah, awesome, yeah. yeah. Kaweco, yeah. The Kaweco Those... Sport is an awesome deal, yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. Really inexpensive, but just beautiful. It writes fantastically, and it just, yeah, to, to feel something that's really well-made in your hand is an incredible pleasure. It's so awesome, so, so awesome. Now we move to our next segment. This is called Click Spiral. And um, this is where each of us talks about something that's gotten us lost on the internet, something that's opened a whole bunch of browser tabs uh, that have taken maybe a couple of hours to recover from. If you, the listener, have a Click Spiral that you'd like to send in for for David and me to uh, lose ourselves in, you can email it to hardware at O'Reilly.com. David Craner and I will take a listen to it. We'll, we'll, We'll lose ourselves in it for a bit. And then we'll report back on it in a future episode of the podcast. So we'll start with our guest, Dave. Uh, tell us about a recent click spiral. Okay, yeah. So I'm, I, this is a really tough one because this happens to me basically every single day. Um, but most recently, it's been the series of documentaries that were produced for public television in, I guess, the early 90s. Uh, and it's called uh-huh. The Machine That Changed the World. 
And there's like five or six of them, and each one covers a a major theme in computing, like all the way back to, you know, the future of artificial intelligence from the 60s and Minsky's original work, um, all the way to computer vision. And it really is, you can watch basically six hours of YouTube, Mm -hmm. and it will turn (laughs) into 17 different Wikipedia tabs, which will then spiral into academic articles, and then it'll be five o'clock in the morning. Right, right. So as of the early 90s, even then, the computer was was the machine that changed the world. Oh, yeah. Before to- the internet, totally. everything. Like it, it's, yeah. the, the whole thing is it's, it's super campy in, in, a lot, in a lot of ways because it's it's so hopeful about the future of computers. It reminds me a lot of these AT&T advertisements that Tom uh-huh. Selleck did, which were called uh, You Will, where they uh-huh. made these uh-huh. predictions about what was going to happen. And yeah. It, the really cool thing about this is it, it's very hopeful, but the, the cast of characters and the talking heads is just spectacular. Um, huh. it, everyone from uh, Mitch Kapoor to Marvin Minsky to Jobs, like everybody is in it. And it's such an interesting time because they don't yet know what any of this means. And they go back and they're looking at it from this reference frame of, we thought we were going to build machines that would think by the time mm-hmm. it was 2000. And that's now we're in this space where oh man, we're talking about that again now. And there's a whole episode, and one of the episodes is talking about like virtual reality, and they talk about early VR pioneers and early computer graphics. And it just feels like, wait a second, this mm-hmm. stuff, it repeats itself every 10, 15 years. Right, and, right, right. You know, where's the machine that changed the world set of documentaries, you know, for now? Right, right, right. So does it does everyone in it seem incredibly prescient? Or are there aspects of it that, that look pretty inaccurate with the benefit of hindsight? I mean, it's pretty dead on. I mean, the thing is that the folks that they're talking to are, are at this point already pretty accomplished and pretty proven. And mm-hmm. some of these things you talk about, like, were just, you know, profound, profound failures in terms of artificial intelligence was going to change everything really, right. really quickly. You know, they, they were talking about the sort of ramp for the amount of improvement they have with it. You know, that Minsky talks about how they able, were able to get a computer to get an A grade on the freshman MIT calculus test within a year. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it just never, never accelerated at that pace. It didn't really compound and it didn't get the focus that it needed and it sort of fell by the wayside. Um, and then there's there's a, the really sort of poignant moment in one of them where they talked to Doug Engelbert about even at that hmm. time, even in the late ni- early 90s, late 80s, you know, he was sort of forgotten, right? There's mm-hmm, been there's mm-hmm. been this movement recently for the mother of all demos to be something that you talk about. Um, and it's <laughs> right, so right, important. Right. And he's there like kind of walking the campus at Stanford and no one recognizes him and He's just ah. sort of like, I can't believe it didn't change anything. It just right, didn't. Right, right, right. And, and he's not alive anymore, I don't think. And, and you just kind of, you kind of almost want to cry because you're like, like, mm-hmm. Doug, hang on, man. We're so close. It's like 1991. Like, just wait a few right, right, more right. years and everything you talked about will be real. Right. We're, we're all very aware of the kind of cyclical aspect of this, like especially right now, because AI is again a term that people talk about something that's like right around the corner or something that, you know, practitioners are getting into. Um, and and Engelbart is is big in kind of that context, like, whoa, look at what people talked about back in the 60s. It, it's, it's you know, all the same ideas that we're talking about now. Were people in the early 90s as aware of the kind of cyclical aspect of it? I, mean, I think that's actually one of the real draws for me about this show, about this sort of the click hole that is the machine that changed the world is that it's pretty thoughtful about these things. And to hear some like the giants sort of tell you like, yeah, we thought this was going to work this way. And then it didn't. And things didn't mm-hmm. happen as fast as we thought it would uh, yeah. is it, pretty it's pretty humbling, right? Because these are the these are the people that I read about as a kid. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, there's <laughs> never going to be another time like this. This is never going to happen again. Like, I missed right. it. And to see them talk about it and be like, oh, OK, well, 
you know, they're they were just as lost as we are right now. And that's just part right. of the process. Right, right. There was this great um, New Yorker article from the early 90s that someone recently linked to uh, where the the writer interviewed Bill Gates over email about email. And it was this to <laughs> totally novel thing. Like most most professionals were only just then perhaps getting email if they were like particularly forward looking. And um, Bill Gates wrote very coherently about email and what it promised to do. Um, but the things that he wanted out of email are exactly the things that people are still struggling with right now. Not just the organization stuff, but the like, how do you overcome distance and convey emotion? How do you make email, you know, rich and include, um, you know, video and images and kind of formatting that that conveys your taste and style and, and expresses yourself better? And we don't really have this conversation about email itself anymore, but it's absolutely at the core of you know, what people want to do with all sorts of new conversational and, and, and communicational technologies. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's really fascinating because it's similar to that, right? Like we're it, it, it seems so close in that as a, you know, I'm not a big fan of the word technologist, right? But as someone like mm -hmm. who plays with the tech and uses it and is conversant about it, like it's really easy to talk about what the near future could look like if everyone just bought in today and we all mm -hmm. supported it. Um, mm -hmm. But it turns out like getting it to that place of existence is, is really, really hard. And you look at in the in the same series, they talk about it as well. Um, you know, they talk about the Alto and, you know, YC is doing this really cool article series where they're restoring one of the Altos because Alan Kay huh. is now part of YC Research or whatever. And, uh, wh what uh, is an Alto? So the Xerox Alto is probably the most important uh, computer-like or mini computer or personal computer thing that has existed in the late 20th century. It was the thing that created the user interface paradigm that ultimately became the Lisa and the Macintosh. Uh, and what mm -hmm. we know today is the modern windowing system. And it also birthed um, from Xerox PARC, um, Ethernet, interconnected mm -hmm. methods for networking these different things. Uh, it just was this incredible project that had basically the dream team of people working on it. And we have been playing out the promise of the Alto for the last 50, you know, 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. And to hear Alan Kay talk about the Alto, and to talk about how you know they had to change their frame of reference around how you design a computer, how it was, you had to think about children. Could a child use this? And to see mm -hmm. that they basically had all this stuff working. You know, they had inter-office email, they had document collaboration, they had a laser right. printer, they had all of it, <laughs> and it just never got to the customer, never got to the market, and it, uh -huh. it gave you this. It, it's really poignant for me because it talks about, you know, the best product is not always the best business. And right, right. this idea of timing in the market is so fundamental. And the idea that even if you have the technology, if you can't find a way to package it and present it and explain it to regular people, you really don't have anything. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. you know, Engelbart made a huge leap and then Xerox made an even bigger leap. But, Engel, you know, Xerox's customer for the Alto principally was, you know, Jobs. Like he was the only person who could see it and be like, all right, well, if we could package this and we could get right, people excited right. about it, then there might be something here. And we live right. in this world now where, you know, Steve Jobs walks, walks the earth as, you know, can do no wrong. But there was a time when the Macintosh was an enormous failure mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it, you know, it was really expensive and, you know, it lost. And yeah. the Apple three was supposed to be the future of that company. And so, you know, we forget that part of it. And it's really important to remember that it took from Engelbart to the Alto, to the Lisa, to the Macintosh, even to Windows, you know, up until the mid 90s until people really got it. 
Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, the last thing I'll say about this set of videos is that there's a point where they're interviewing someone at some kind of like, you know, big business where they push forms around. Yeah. And yeah. they say this thing like, I cannot believe that I can see the exact same document as someone on the other side of the world at the same time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's just a sense of wonder about something that's so commonplace today. And for me personally, like I am really excited about what's happening now and the stuff that we're working on. Just I, I can't get enough of it. And there's so many crazy things happening. And everyone's, you know, a lot of people who don't get to see it are like, eh, man, everything's the same, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, to see that there was a time when people saw the technology in its most fundamental way and it blew their minds. Right, it's so right. exciting that 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 was possible and it's still possible, but trying to really solve that problem for people where they're just like, oh, man, nothing is the same anymore. Things just got a lot better. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's it's worth considering this kind of um, compression of history in hindsight, and especially now that so much of what people work on is Internet software that can take off very quickly. You know, WeChat got like 100 million users within two years of, of launching and uh it's easy to look back on kind of the early history of the computer and see with the benefit of hindsight that this stuff all made sense, that there were a few really prescient people out there and then just feel like it, you know, it took off and swept everyone away. But there's a long period where the public and and even a lot of very intelligent people didn't see the possibility and didn't understand how these things would fit in. And so getting the network off the ground, getting the whole ecosystem of software and hardware that made these things valuable took ages, decades. I mean, yeah, it took forever. And it's, um, I mean, I, I hope that we can, you know, people working on this like ourselves can go back and look at this stuff. It's why I'm so excited about it. And it gives you hope that it can be figured out and that we have to do this work now to figure these things out. I mean, you go right. back and you look at the Apple II and when it was announced, like, people are like, what do I need a computer for? What's the, you know, right. what, what am I going to do with this? What, you know, we talk about now about the killer app, which is sort of this, you know, postmodern idea. But at the time, like, it was useless to a lot of people. Its principal market was education for years mm-hmm, until mm-hmm. Brickland comes along and all of a sudden there's VisiCalc. And, you know, we're so quick, you know, now it's very easy to I think, get a lot of attention, you know, by by saying, OK, well, you know, there isn't there isn't an app application here. This is all just nonsense when we haven't had our VisiCalc moment yet. And right, right. It's going to come, but it has to, like you're saying, it really, there has to be the infrastructure. There has to be the reduction in cost. There has to be a lot of people working on it and it has to be accessible because mm-hmm. once it's, once everyone's got one on their desk and it's just around, that's when the experimentation happens. And we saw it with the Apple II, you know, we saw it with, with the PC, we saw it with phones and we saw it on the web, you know, 2008, like the idea that you would make a website just for sharing links and voting them up and down is like, ugh, come on, like who would invest <laughs> millions of dollars in that in that, that time? But when it's something that a few people could do because it, it scratched their itch, it, it started to work and crazier things started to happen. Oh, an app just for taking pictures that look cool? Like that seems ridiculous. That's a serious business. And that's, you know, those things are only possible, you know, the saying that, uh, and no technology is real until the artists get their hands on it. Right, right. And that's, that's really how I feel about it. Awesome. What is the name of this series again? It's called The Machine That Changed the World. Terrific. We'll we'll link to it in the show notes that accompany this episode. If you visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware, uh, you'll see Dave's click spiral there. Again, if you, the listeners, would like to send in a click spiral for us to talk about on the podcast, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com uh, and we'll sink a couple hours into it. All right. Dave Rauschwerk from Next Thing Co. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Where can people find you if they want to track you down? Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. You can find us at getgetchipchip.com. 
And you can find the forum and chip and pocket chip and all of our rantings on our blog. Awesome. David, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>